G'day, I'm Adam Spencer and this is City Talks, brought to you by the City of Sydney. City Talks is about starting a conversation, a healthy community discussion about important and innovative global, national and local city issues. In this podcast, we feature some curated highlights from the City Talks public speaker series, recorded live at Sydney Town Hall. Connie Hedegaard is an international climate expert. A former journalist, she served as Danish Minister for Climate and Energy and EU Commissioner for Action on Climate. She's been a key figure in keeping climate change at the top of the EU and international agenda. And she likes asking the tough questions. Why don't we do more? Why aren't we doing it now? What are governments waiting for? Well, in this city talk that took place in the lead-up to the signing of the Paris Agreement in 2015, Connie points out it's not all up to the politicians. It's about us as citizens and as consumers. What you do and what you don't do actually matters. It makes a difference. It's time to face up to some tough questions. Connie Hedegaard, over to you. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much, not only for inviting me for... To, to come to Sydney, but also being part of this fantastic tradition with the City Talks as a public institution. I must say it's quite impressed to see that so many people want to take part in this conversation and not have been deterred by the boring topic of climate change. Half a year ago, some very esteemed scientists from University College London published this study that there was a link between climate change and sort of what triggered what happened in the Middle East with the Arab Spring. How come? In Syria, since 2007, they had had a historically severe drought. And it dragged on and on and on until 2010. They had, it was so severe that 1.5 million Syrians fled the rural areas, went to the cities that, of course, could not absorb that influx of people. And then you have the civil war starting in 2010. Of course, Syria had many problems, really many problems. Authoritarian regime and problems after the Iraq war, many things. But this is just one example how climate change is a threat multiplier. We all know what is now the consequence with migrants coming towards Europe, coming many places. So it's about security, it's about refugees, it's about life conditions changing in an unpredictable way, and it's about the well-being of future generations. There are really many causes behind climate change. The big drivers for what we see now, and we'll see even more in the future, would be the man-made contribution. That's due to deforestation, And it's due to the fact that we are basing our economies and our growth on fossil fuels, on coal, oil and gas. So what to do? Well, either you could have less growth or you could choose another way to get your growth. Well, personally, I believe that whether we like it or not, we will need a lot of growth, growing populations and growth we will get. So I think that the key question is, which kind of growth? How to make our growth low carbon, greener, more resource efficient, 
call it whatever you want. How to change track. It's one of the most difficult things for policymakers that is really to make change. Why not? Because they are evil persons or bad will, but because we are living in a very complex, global and interdependent world. We have global challenges, we have global markets, global trade, global finances, global competition, but we have very, very weak global political democratic institutions. Very weak, but also very, very slow, frustratingly slow, sometimes as the climate change negotiations will be proof of. And of course, it doesn't make it easier for policymakers that they are living with a day-to-day -day news cycle, if not hours to hours. In climate change, we have had this tendency that everybody is waiting for everybody else to move because everybody else will be everybody else's competitors. But if everybody waits for everybody, then usually not too much happens. And when it comes to climate change, time is of essence. Urgency must be understood here. So I think the first thing to do is to listen to science. Science who tells us that by 2050, we have to be down to two tons emissions per capita, globally speaking. Now, what does that say? Probably not too much, but I can tell you that does not mean to continue business as usual. In Australia, you have an average of 24 tons emitted per capita. In the US, 18. In the EU, a little less than eight soon to be surpassed by China, already over about seven. I'm not a specialist in the Australian case, so I don't know all the reasons why your emissions is three times that of an average European. But I do know some of the reasons why Europe is steadily declining its total absolute emissions, so far 19% compared to 1990, while we had an economic growth of 45%. We have set up targets, binding, and we're actually on track to meet them. We're binding targets for CO2 emissions, for energy efficiency, and for renewables for all 28 member states covering 500 million people in Europe. We have this, some might think, strange tradition of pricing things we do not like, price pollution, tax energy, scarce resources in order to create incentives for energy efficiency, and yes, we also price carbon. So we have targets, we have pricing, and the third tool will be regulation. Standards for cars, for vans, for trucks, for fuels, for machinery, for windows, for, you know, whatever. Is that not red tape, green tape? Well, if you have one standard instead of 28 different standards, it doesn't spell red tape necessarily to me. But I know that maybe some of you would think, yeah, but just look how awful the European economy is performing. And it's true. We have had a crisis, economic crisis, very serious one. But isn't it interesting when the heads of states and government of Europe 
at some point, at the height of the crisis, wanted to study where do the jobs come from, which sectors can contribute net to job creation. It turned out that the green sector, clean sector, renewable sector, efficiency sector was even during the crisis year, the, years, the big driver for new jobs. We have now more than one million jobs in the renewable sector in Europe, and we have 4.2 million jobs in what we call the eco-industries, you could also call it the green industries. So I think that we have proven that if you do it correctly, if you do it intelligently, if you do it smartly, it can be a driver for innovation. Green policies, strong policies, climate policies can be a driver for innovation and thus for export. I come from Denmark. In the 1970s, we were 100% dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, that had to change for reasons I have not time to go into here. And today we have almost 40% of our electricity stemming from renewables. On some days, actually, back in January, we had a day where it was more than 100% of our electricity. We have the world's most energy-efficient pumps, refrigerators, insulation. We have created some new brands, new strongholds for wanting to be serious on climate. And yes, we have wind. We have a lot of wind, and we're proud of that. <laughs> I know that some say that wind turbines are not exactly beautiful. <laughs> but um, I tend to think that that also goes for power plants. And I'll not bore you with too many more statistics, but just this one. Since year 2000, the green energy export in Denmark has seen a 7% growth average year after year after year. Last year it was 15%, the year before it was 17%. It makes good business. And the interesting thing is, which markets are in particularly growing? Who is taking our goods? The other European countries. Why? Because they have binding targets to live up to. In other words, it works to set up binding targets. That's also why now we have set up the targets for 2030 before Paris. We have to reduce with minimum 40% through domestic action, not through offsetting. Why is that? Because that can sometimes be cheaper. Because if we are going in the long term, and that is 2050, to have turned into a low-carbon society, then you won't make yourself a low-carbon society by offsetting what you should be doing by buying projects in other countries. Then you have to start the very difficult jobs of transforming your own sectors, transport, building, agriculture, all these places where it's not so easy. I think that whether it's nations, cities, or sectors, there is no point in waiting. There's no reason to postpone instead of starting a gradual pass and thereby give business the predictability that they need. In Europe, we decided the 2030 targets in October 2014. And one month later, we saw President Obama and President Xi Jinping come out, if not hand in hand, but sort of mentally hand in hand, 
announcing what now they would do for climate. Why is that interesting? Because before, we have had what I call the after you, sir, syndrome, where the one was waiting for the other, was waiting for the first, and not much happened. Now they actively engage. I think that really gives hope for Paris, where all have to contribute. But it is fair, isn't it, when we in Europe and you in Australia would like Paris to deliver an agreement where not just those who were developed countries back in the 90s, but where all countries give their fair share and start pursuing a more sustainable development strategy, then it is fair that the developing world says, it's okay, we are ready to take that move. Ready to move away from this old, only some of us had to do something. But then all industrialized countries must show to us and show to the world that they are doing their maximum, their utmost. I think that it's extremely important to acknowledge, no, it's not for free to make such a transition. But what we really need to grasp is, it's also not for free to continue business as usual. Business as usual does not mean business as usual. Business as usual means a lot of change, but change we have not planned, that we have not prepared for, and it comes with a lot of cost and also human cost. Some would say, yeah, but that's all very well, but energy must not become more expensive because then the bill ends up with citizens. Yeah. Who else would be there to pay? I mean, either we pay as consumers when we buy products, or we pay as taxpayers. How we split the bill and the burden and who should do what, that's of course a very interesting political discussion, but I just think we cannot say it must not cost anything. Yeah, of course, if you don't believe in climate, you could say that. But to those who acknowledge, one, that there is climate change, and two, accept that we all have a responsibility to act, also via the next generation, then it's tempting to ask the following. How much must it really cost? How much is it worth to try and save the planet, to do the right thing? Can it cost a little bit? Somewhat? Or is the answer nothing? I mean, if a country's GDP grows more than 20% in a decade, can it not cost a tiny bit of that? Or maybe a little more than that? It must cost something. We cannot tell people that it doesn't cost anything to change. But by the way, to save energy costs nothing in a longer perspective. It actually lowers your energy bill, it does not increase your bill. Wrapping up, the answers to how you will handle this challenge, of course, will be different compared to where you are and compared to what your competitors are doing and what your situation is. But I really believe that more and more people, and not the least, more and more young people realize that we have to invest in a different future, or we send a huge bill to their generation. And more and more realize that it's a mistake to think this, that business as usual is business as usual. So what we need, in my view, 
is a paradigm shift. We need politics to turn away from always focusing on the shorter term to think a bit more for the longer term. Actually, the market is excellent at thinking and acting for the short term. You need politicians to think also for the longer term. And there, of course, it helps if we have this price signal, if you price pollution or carbon or externalities, that sends the signal the market needs for the market to innovate and transform. We need to get away from the silo thinking, where we think that we can sort of solve each problem on its own in a silo in administrations or ministries or business organizations. We need to think much more cross-cutting. And then we need to get away from this buy and consume and throw out paradigm. I don't know how you see this. I feel that there is a paradigm shift here on its way. More people are interested in use up, recycle, minimize waste, more quality over quantity. And now I'm speaking of those of us who are living in countries where we have a very high living standards. Finally, is this hopeless? Is it naive? Well, 2014, although it was the hottest year ever registered, it was actually also the first year registered where the world managed to stabilize global emissions while we had a global increase in GDP of 3%. And by the way, last year, 2014, was the year where there was more new installed energy capacity in the world, globally speaking, that was renewable than was fossil fuel. Who would have thought that for not too long ago? So, to end on a more positive note there, things have started to move. Sometimes we cannot always see it when we are in the midst of a transition. And that's also why I think that Paris have a better choice than for many, many years actually to deliver a meaningful outcome. It's a big task, as I mentioned, to get all on board, to agree on finance, to have adaptation included. And the overall success criteria for Paris must not be just to have an agreement. It must be an agreement where when people and the negotiators and governments leave Paris, it is still likely for the world to stay below the two degrees Celsius. That must be the success criteria. And then on top of that, and in parallel with Paris, we should start not just to talk about phasing out fossil fuels subsidies. Every time we subsidize renewables with one dollar globally, we subsidize fossil fuels with five dollars. Everyone can see that doesn't make sense in the 21st century. So we must have a package on top of Paris where also we are phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, where we change investment streams. We heard from The Guardian why this is important and where everybody starts to factor in risk in their long-term investments and start to either divest or at least to use much more active ownership when they own shares in the fossil companies. I really think there's a new wave coming here of activism on this. We're only three months before Paris, and now I've been talking about business, 
and politicians and governments. I've also mentioned science. My very last remark will be about you, the citizens. Because the citizens also have a responsibility as consumers and as concerned, uh, concerned, informed citizens. In your daily life, in your daily choices, your daily practices, you send signals to your politicians and to industry whether you care or not. You have a tremendous power there. Europe and Australia will be different in many ways, I think. But here is one area where we see things very much alike, I guess. Because here we have something in common. The citizen's voice, what you say or what you are silent about, what you do or what you don't do, it actually matters, it makes a difference. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to speak up, it's time to act wherever we are and wherever we can try and make our contribution to the world-changing track. We need to act now. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Connie Hedegaard. If you want to hear more from other experts passionately committed to enhancing life in our cities, download City Talks from wherever you get your podcast fix. And if you're listening to us in Sydney, keep your eye out for more live City Talk events on the City of Sydney website. I'm Adam Spencer. Bye-bye.